Hello and welcome to the Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, May the 4th. This week we're focusing on ophthalmology, if you will allow the pun. We publish in the May 5th to the 11th issue of the Lancet a three-part ophthalmology series which covers the topics of age-related macular degeneration, myopia and corneal transplant surgery. And for this podcast we're going to focus on series paper 2, myopia. Earlier I spoke to one of the authors of this paper, Professor Ian Morgan, whose accreditation is the Australian National University and also the Zhongshan Ophthalmic Centre in Guangzhou in China. Professor Ian Morgan, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Your paper specifically looks at myopia, which is a term that we're all familiar with. But the interesting thing, I think, about myopia is there's a lot more to it than just having some spectacles or a contact lens for for short-sightedness. There's a much deeper issue here. Do you want to just start with some definitions and, and talk about the important pathology of myopia? Myopia is essentially a condition where the eye has grown too long for the optical power. And so the image is focused in front of the retina and when you use or attempt to use your powers of accommodation, that is your lens, you in fact make the situation worse. So myopia needs optical correction. It's different to hyperopia or long-sightedness where you can use your lens to clear the image and until you reach the age of 50 to 60 and need reading glasses, that shouldn't pose much of a problem. There are two issues which, which have made myopia really important. The first issue is that it's now reached a state of epidemic in East Asia in the city where I'm speaking from, Guangzhou in China, something like 80 to 90% of children are leaving high school short-sighted and needing glasses. So that's one issue. There's a huge load on resources for correction in a country where incomes are still very low and where professionals are in relatively short supply. But it's not just in China, it's in Korea, Japan, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong as well. The second major issue with myopia is that when you get to what's called high myopia, severe myopia, myopia of, say, more than minus six diopters, which means the world is blurred 16 centimetres away from you and further, then you're at much higher risk of pathological outcomes. Retinal detachments are one of the earliest to show and they can even be seen in highly myopic children. But later on you develop a more serious set of pathologies, problems with the retina and with the choroid and this can lead to visual impairment and in some cases at least to blindness. And these are conditions that are still difficult to treat. Just before we explore some of the very interesting things you've just said there, can you just comment on the genetic pattern, if you like, or situation? Because presumably there are all sorts of gene alterations associated with myopia. Traditionally, for about the last 50 years, it's been believed that myopia was genetic. That was what the textbooks tended to say. That's what the... uh, websites and professional organisations tended to say. The thing that's forced us to change our thinking on this is the rapidity of the change that's taken place in East Asia. We've gone from perhaps 20 to 30% of myopia just after the Second World War 
to 80 to 90%. That can't be due to changes in gene pools. That has to be due to changes in the environment. And so there's been a pronounced shift from thinking about genetically determined myopia to environmentally determined myopia. That doesn't mean genetics is unimportant. The first and obvious thing is that it's a core part of modern biology that gene expression is important and any environmental effect has to exert a change in gene expression. This is a different thing to the actual cause of the problem being a, a genetic mutation of some kind. There are extreme cases, extreme uh, hyperopia and extreme myopia that are clearly genetic but the predominance of myopia that we see is almost certainly due to environmental exposures that we would be better off avoiding. Can you just elaborate on, on what some of these environmental factors are? You mentioned specifically where you are in China. Tell us what the situation is there. China is one of the places, cities in China in particular, where you've had this you know, quite startling rise in the prevalence of myopia. It's traditionally been thought that the big risk factor for myopia was education and that in biological terms that was caused by the fact that you did too much reading, too much accommodation or had too much hyperopic focus because your accommodation wasn't perfect and that would lead to myopia. That's undoubtedly uh, a part of the story. The more recent part of the story is evidence that's come initially from Australia which has exceptionally low prevalences of myopia even compared to the UK and other uh, populations that are of European origin. Our prevalence is really very low. We've got some, I think, very good evidence now that the important factor is a protective factor and this is really important. Children who spend a lot of time outside do not become myopic even when they do a lot of study, a lot of new work. If you like, you can picture the development of myopia as a system which is pushing towards uh, myopia and in a simplified sense that's educational pressures, too much study, too much reading and there's a break on the process and a very powerful break as it turns out which is spending time outside. So reading clearly you've mentioned, tell me more about exposure to the outside environment. This must be exposure to ultraviolet presumably, is that right? No, it's actually not ultraviolet. This has been a little bit controversial because when you're saying children who get outside, one of the things you would actually think about is UV exposure. But the other characteristic is that outside lights are much brighter than inside lights. Typically inside a house or an office you might have say 500 lux. Outside you might have uh, 10,000 lux and in, on bright sunny days in uh, Canberra and Sydney you can have up to 200,000 lux. So very much brighter light. The evidence now suggests that it's the brightness of the light and not UV that's really important. What rules out UV is that this effect, this protective effect against the development of myopia has been 
produced in animal models under laboratory conditions using UV free lights. So it's light itself or visible light itself and not UV which seems to be important. Do you know what biological mechanism is going on there that's offering this protection against myopia due to light, good strong light exposure? Yes, I think we do. There's been a long tradition of uh, work, work, some of which I did before I became interested in myopia itself, which has shown that the uh, retinal transmitter, dopamine, is released by bright light intensities. And it's almost linear function of log lighting. More light, more dopamine release. Another parallel line of research has shown that dopamine in animal models of myopia can act as an inhibitor of eye growth. So putting those two things together, it was natural to put up the hypothesis that bright light releases retinal dopamine which blocks eye growth. Neat hypothesis. It's been taken into the animal models using bright light to protect myopia and to show that dopamine antagonists block the protection. So that seems to be pretty strong evidence that we've got not only a clear biological effect, but we've got a clear understanding of what the biological pathway is, at least up to the level of dopamine release. Some final perspectives this huge increase in the instance of myopia, particularly in East Asia that you've been describing, I realise there are cultural and political issues at play here as well, but is there enough evidence to actually persuade the policymakers who look after education programmes in China to make them realise that actually their children need to be outdoors more and, and, and reading and working a bit less hard? I would say yes, there's sufficient evidence to make it worthwhile having a serious attempt to change lifestyle, but changing lifestyle is really very hard. There are two things. There is a, an East Asian, uh, particularly Chinese, but not exclusively Chinese, commitment to education as the way to success. And so children in China, in Singapore, in Korea, Japan work incredibly hard compared to the standards that uh, I'm used to either in Australia or the UK. The second thing, and this is something I've only realised since I've actually spent a considerable amount of time in China, is that there is another cultural factor. It's a habit in China for children, particularly primary school age children, to uh, sleep at lunchtime. Now, that doesn't happen in Australian schools, the kids are out playing and in fact we couldn't stop them. So that Chinese children are being hit with a double whammy. They're under intense educational pressure and at the same time they're using up in sleeping time what would be prime myopia prevention time outside. The problem is changing these things really very hard. We have... Um, uh, some pilot programs underway. Um, one school-based program is giving really quite marginal effects. We have, if you like, proof of principle that it works, but we've got to scale up the degree of change enormously for it to be useful. We have some ideas about using uh, much more, much better lit classrooms to give kids a uh, 
an outdoor style experience while they're learning, that seems likely to be able to deliver the outcomes that we're after, but putting that into place is not easy. How would you summarise the future research priorities for myopia? Well, I think the research priorities are twofold, essentially. One is that we do have a very promising clue as to how we can prevent myopia, and we need to pursue that in order to see if our latest understanding can deliver effective protection in a mass scale, most likely through the education system itself. The second priority area, if you think about it, and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, not only are 80 to 90% of children leaving school myopic, but something like 15 to 20% are now in that range of severity of myopia where they're at severe risk of going on to pathological outcomes. So prevention, of course, would ultimately fix both, but we also need to make a lot of progress in more effective prevention and control and treatment of pathological myopia. Professor Ian Morgan on the line from China. Thank you very much indeed for talking to The Lancet. No problems. And that's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. See you next time.